This podcast episode is sponsored by me. I'm Ethan Freckleton, a mindset coach for author entrepreneurs. I help author entrepreneurs to achieve a sustainable, flexible, profitable business without all the burnout and overwhelm. Learn more by visiting ethanfreckleton.com forward slash mindset. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. From the time his older sister landed a record deal at the age of 16, Jason Bloom had dreams of making it in the music business. With an unwavering love of music and dedication to mastering his craft, he had plenty of chances to settle for the first breaks that came his way. The first several years weren't easy, but as Jason said, I knew I had to pursue my dream or I'd never forgive myself. For anyone who's thought of giving up or decided that there is no plan B, you'll want to give this interview a listen. Jason offers us a behind-the-scenes recounting of his journey in pursuit of his dream job, writing chart-topping hit singles. Jason Bloom, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Well, thank you, Ethan. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, I bet it's really good to be here from where <laughs> you're at. <laughs> yes, life is tough, but I am enduring life on Kauai where it is just heaven because we have very few tourists or almost no tourists, which mm-hmm. means no traffic and empty beaches and one of the lowest infection rates in the country. So it's a wonderful place to be stuck. but. It's a little weird for me because this is the longest I have been in one place without traveling in at least 25 years. Yeah. And I'm surprised that I like it, by the way. (laughs) You are surprised, yeah. I miss the traveling. I'm not saying I don't want to do it. Believe me, I want to do it. But I'm also loving just the peaceful sense of being in one place. Mm. Yeah something to write about. So for people who may not know who you are, what would you like to share about yourself? Well, I am uh, a very lucky, very fortunate songwriter. And I also am an author on of uh, four songwriting books. The most successful one is Six Steps to Songwriting Success. It's used in a lot of universities and songwriting programs. But um, my passion, and I'm going to say my greatest um, ability, is teaching. Mm. And that was a big surprise for me to learn that I'm probably a much better teacher than a songwriter. But for people who don't know anything about me, I I really clawed my way to success and, and got rewarded really well. I was in the right place at the right time, and I had done the right footwork to become the first collaborator for Britney Spears. But please don't hold that against me, he said laughing. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I had songs on the first two Britney Spears albums, which were just like incredible to have that. And then on top of that, the Backstreet Boys Millennium album, 
But what's really ironic is I was in Nashville when all of that was happening. Mm. I had spent 13 years banging my head against the wall in Los Angeles trying to get songwriting success. And it's just really ironic that my first breakthrough was while I lived in Los Angeles was a Nashville country song. And then my next really big break, the Oak Ridge Boys recorded one of my songs and it was a single. And this was at a time where they were like as big as it could get. And that opened up opportunities to me that I had dreamed about, that I had worked for for so many years. Hmm. So I wound up signing a staff writing deal in Nashville and I had a lot of success with country artists. I had uh, a top five single. I had a lot of other singles and, and lots of cuts. But truthfully, it's the Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys that changed my life. Mm. Um, you know, that, that paid for my condo on Kauai. You know, I'll put it that way. Yeah. I, I calculated at one point that I would have needed 25 Reba McIntyre cuts to equal the income from one Backstreet Boys. <laughs> I feel like this would work really well as like a visual illustration <laughs> to illustrate the music industry time. So but you know what? I, yeah. I, I, I would like to be uplifting and inspiring, but the truth of the matter is that train has left the station. There are no more sales like that anymore in the world because I got on just at the, at the cusp, really just at the end before digital took over. Yeah. So now you don't have anybody selling 25 million albums. Uh, you know, not Adele, not Justin Bieber, not anybody, not Taylor Swift. So I was really, really lucky in addition to having, you know, waited a long time and worked very, very hard for that success. Um, today, I tell people that if you're going to have really big success in the songwriting business, mm -hmm. you're going to have to write hit singles. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can't earn money on album sales, not life-changing money. Yeah. Or, or almost never. Well, and I imagine like this frame of life-changing money, I'm, I'm guessing that that big cut wasn't your first life-changing money in terms of keeping you on that path or right like you mentioned being very fortunate but it sounds like you were driven and, and tenacious and i'm curious like why you decided songwriting was like the thing that you were going to hang yourself on right like yeah i grew up in a very musical household my sister who happens to be six years, six months, six days older than me, mm -hmm. um, had a major record deal when she was 16. Mm. So by the time I was nine and a half years old, I already was like immersing in the pop mm. music world. Um, my sister was having rehearsals. Uh, she was in a trio and she was having rehearsals in our basement and uh, you know, and they were listening to, to demos. And, and it's like, I got this introduction to music, to pop music really early. But I also grew up with my father playing mandolin literally every day of my life. Mm -hmm. Every night, my father would sit and play the mandolin. And he couldn't read music, but he had an incredible ear. And he could just play anything by ear and he would weave together these beautiful medleys and just would come up with these segues. I mean, he was writing music without realizing it. And probably, I don't know, maybe by the time I was about 12, I started writing songs and I started playing my father's mandolin. And it was as if I had already had a lifetime of lessons. It was weird. I picked mm -hmm. it up and I knew how to play from having, I guess, watched and listened to him from the time I was an infant, yeah. probably. So I started writing songs at 12. And um, I was also a singer. 
So I was playing, by the time I was, say, 16 or 17, I was playing in coffee houses, and my idols were people like Cat Stevens, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, who I worship, um, Leonard Cohen. Those were the people I was really drawn to, and I was playing a lot of their music, but I was writing mm-hmm. also. And I went to college to become a psychologist. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perfect, perfect for the crazy music business. And I wound up, I got my degree in psychology, but I wound up taking more music classes and got more music credits than I even did in psychology. And I was uh, studying composing and, uh, and, you know, music theory and all of this stuff that frankly never stuck. I just mm-hmm. don't have that in my brain. Yes, I learned it and it, and a week later, I couldn't have told you about it. So, you know, <laughs> I can relate to that and foreign and I languages. Tell people, I tell people, you know, it's really the proof that you don't need to understand music theory to write melody that sticks in the brain. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated, I got a job in a psychiatric hospital. At least I think I was working there. Um, but uh, they did let me go home at night, so I guess I was working there. And I was playing uh, gigs. I was a strolling mandolinist. And then I would also go up on a platform with a guitar, and I would serenade the uh, the people who were dining in this restaurant. And I knew at that point in time I had to, I had to pursue my dream, mm. which was the songwriter and or singer-songwriter. And I decided I've got to do it or I will never forgive myself. And I quit my job, packed up my car, took my $400 that was my total savings mm-hmm. and drove to Los Angeles to be a superstar in one year. That's how long I knew it would take. <laughs> and I would have a Mercedes in my driveway at the end of a year. And the ironic thing is it didn't even take two weeks to have a Mercedes in my driveway because I seriously got a job that included taking rich people's Mercedes to the car wash. <laughs> and sometimes I would stop at home and pick something up. So I had a Mercedes in my driveway all right. And I took every class that there was. I had no idea how much I didn't know about songwriting. When I took my first class right after moving to Los Angeles, I honestly did not know that the title was supposed to be in the song. If I wrote a song because I was sitting out on my balcony and looking at the moon, I might title that song In the Moonlight. Mm -hmm. Well, it had nothing to do with the moon or the moonlight. I had no clue. I didn't know that songs had structures. And when I learned that you're supposed to use verses and choruses and bridges, well, I just thought that was horrible, that they were (laughs) going to squash my creativity, you know, try and put it in a box. And, And that just seemed like the absolute antithesis of being the creative artist that I wanted to be. And it took a while for me to grasp that the structure was nothing more than a box to deliver the song. Just like if I wanted to give someone coffee, I would pour it in a cup so they could receive it. I wouldn't just pour it in their hand. And using song structures, I realized, did not water down the message or the emotion of my song. It simply delivered it. So now did I become successful in a year? Well, not exactly. I moved into a room in Hollywood. And the thing is, you have to realize, I came from Philadelphia, where there was no doubt if you were in a ghetto, if you were in a really dangerous area, you knew it. It didn't look like that. 
where I moved in Hollywood. It looked really nice. But as I was moving into my room, and I say a room because that's what I rented, no bathroom, no kitchen, just a room. And the bathroom was down the hall. And as I'm moving in, there is a SWAT team on my building, on the roof, <laughs> shooting at people. <laughs> it was a really bad area. And um, I got a good education because everybody that lived in my building was either a hooker or a junkie or a songwriter. And, um, you know, so I, I learned a lot and made some interesting friends. And during that time, the famous story is I was so poor, I ate cat food and I didn't have a cat. It, um, you know, I just had no money. I had 11 cents at one point that I dug out from behind the cushions and the couch. And 11 cents, this is way back, bought mm -hmm. me one can of kitty tuna. Yeah. And it said the ingredients were 100% tuna. I'm sure that was true, but let's not think about what parts of the tuna I was probably eating. The cheapest parts, I guess, huh? Exactly. Well, so, and how did it taste? Real talk moment here, Jason. Okay. Do you remember? How it tasted was too fishy, really like a strong, fishy taste. But when I mixed it with some mayo for 11 cents, it was the best I could do. And that started me regularly buying cat food to uh -huh. eat. So who had, who had the best cat food? Like, what was the best? Are you kidding? I couldn't afford, like, fancy feast or anything. <laughs> I would find generic, <laughs> the cheapest supermarket brand cat food there was. So you weren't, you weren't like, becoming a tastemaker for cat food. It was, you, you well, didn't. You no, become a foodie I, I, at that time. I was not really a connoisseur. It was simply whatever was on sale, the cheapest can. And uh, the important thing for me to say at this point is that sometimes when I share that, people will say to me, oh, my God, that must have been so horrible. You mm -hmm. were, you know, so devoted to suffer through that. And the answer is actually... It was one of the happiest times of my life. Yeah. Um, I didn't care about my what my surroundings were. What I cared about was I was following my dreams. I was 100% certain I was going to be successful doing what it is that I loved. And I had gotten into that first songwriting workshop, and I was learning, and I was interacting with people. I was ecstatic. And the reason, by the way, that I could only afford a room, I got a job, but I was only working 15 hours a week, taking the Mercedes to the car wash and picking up these rich people's dry cleaning and things like that. But I only worked 15 hours a week because I hadn't moved to Los Angeles and given up everything in my life in order to work a full-time job. Yeah. I moved there to make my full-time job becoming a hit songwriter. Yeah. And after that first year, did, did you, do you remember it, like if your goals shifted at that point or were you still convinced it was going to be a fast road? You know, it's an interesting question. I guess I never think about if I continued to think it would be fast. I knew it was coming. That's mm. all that mattered. I never in a million years imagined it could take as long as it did. Because even being the brilliant songwriter that I am, the gifted, amazing talent that I am, he said with a smile, <laughs> um, it took me 11, 11 and a half years to sign a staff writing deal from the time I moved to Los Angeles to say, I will earn my living as a songwriter. Eleven and a half years later, I earned a pitiful, meager living, but I was earning it as a songwriter. And oh my God, it was just the happiest, most, it was like I had climbed Mount Everest. Yeah. And sure. it, I was just ecstatic. But I don't know if this is just some quirk of my personality 
or if I was just too dumb or ignorant to accept that it was quote unquote an impossible dream. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you that even during the worst frustrating times, even during the, the worst rejections of my music, I never doubted that I would be successful. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, a lot of times I hear people talk about manifesting success. And I don't know a lot of people who have been successful doing that. I'm not poo-pooing it because if it works, go for it. But that's not something I ever did or needed Mm -hmm. to do. It was simply within me. I knew I am going to be successful, period, the end. At one point, I remember my father, who a hundred times begged me to give up this nonsense. And I remember him saying to me, really disgusted, you know, I'll pay for you to go to graduate school. How long are you going to give this nonsense? And I answered very seriously, you know, you're right. I can't do this forever. I'm going to give it 100 years. If I am not (laughs) successful in 100 years, I'm going to take up your offer and go back to school. Yeah. And I just want to add that after I became successful, my father carried around a photo of me with Britney Spears in his pocket, and he would show total strangers. He would show a waitress in a restaurant. You know who this is? That's Britney Spears with my son. I always <laughs> knew he'd be successful. <laughs> that's that's really sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And... Okay, so a couple of questions there. Okay. One, like, do you remember, like, the first time you made money with a song? I do. How, how could you not remember that? There's so many firsts that I remember. I remember the, I, I could tell you exactly where my car was the first time I heard one of my songs on the radio. Mm-hmm. It does not get better than that. I promise you. The first money I made is really weird. Um, what happened is a friend of mine knew I was sort of into country music, and he was the musical director for Rose Marie from the Dick Van Dyke show, the woman mm-hmm. who wore the little black bow in her hair. Mm-hmm. And she did a club act. A lot of people didn't realize that from the time she was like four years old, she had been a famous singer as baby rose marie if anybody wants a serious laugh google baby rose marie she was unbelievable at four years old she had this like deep gravelly kind of voice that just looked like this cannot come out of a child so anyway through the years um even though she was known as a comedian she did a club act so she asked my friend to write a song for her specifically about why she does not sing country music. And her twist on it was, you know, in country music, you got cheating and drinking and broken marriages and everything else. She says, I don't sing about it because I've got enough troubles of my own. (laughs) And that was my friend's assignment to write for her. He came to me and said, would you co-write this song for me with me? Because you know about country music. And um, we brought, it was really funny. I mean, that was the whole idea was to make a comedy song. And the one line I'm remembering right now is I wrote, um, I just can't get my heart in it. I just can't dolly part in it. And she would hold (laughs) her hands up under her boobs when she, you know, sang that line. So anyway, it's very theatrical. Wrote, I like that. Oh, it was very. So, oh, and she and she wore a big blonde wig during uh, part of the song. Perfect. So anyway, she was rehearsing the song with my friend when Entertainment Tonight showed up at her house to do a retrospective on the Dick Van Dyke show, and they heard her rehearsing as they were waiting to come in, and they said, "Well, that sounds really great. Can we just film a little piece of that?" So I wound up having my song as part of her segment on Entertainment Tonight, and then they used more of it over the credits as they rolled. And this was at a time when Entertainment Tonight was on 
at 4 p.m. and I think 11 p.m. So I wound up having two uses twice. Now we're up to four uses. And then they included the segment in entertainment this week on mm. Saturday, like the highlights. Wow. And suddenly I went from never earning a cent from my music to some stupid comedy song earning me $10,000 in royalties. And that was just, you know, wow, you really can make money doing this. I, I like this. Yeah, I bet you did. That's where the first money came from. And I'll tell you a really funny story about the second money. Yeah. Back then, the original TV show Fame would give a whole lot of writers assignments to write a song that would work with the coming week's script. And a friend of mine was on the list of writers who got these assignments. And we wrote together a lot. And week after week after week, we would submit a song and they would really like it and it would not get used. And then I would watch the show and the song that got used would invariably sound nothing like what they had asked us to write. Mm -hmm. And it was just so confounding to realize that they don't really know what they want. They just, they'll know it when they hear it. So after about a year of doing this, I finally got a song on the show. And it was like, oh my God, this is big. And I got invited to the filming and it was so exciting. I remember going to the studio and being on the set and it was a character who was going to sing my song who had never had a song before. They were making him into a bigger character than he had ever been. His name was Dwight and he was a heavy set blonde kid who was, I think, a tuba player in the show. And it now I'm like so excited. The scene is filming and I'm hearing this lush orchestrated arrangement of the intro of my song and the kid looks into the camera and starts speaking the words like it's a poem and out of my mouth i blurted stop wait a minute it had a melody and the director looked at me and said not when he sang it so um you know the uh, at one point she so he had to lip sync spoken word they had already pre-recorded his speaking the song when they realized he couldn't sing and after about 10 takes they they were horrible they screamed at this kid you know you get it right this next time or we'll shoot the scene over your shoulder and and i took out a couple of the expletives that they also said and i was so scared thinking oh my god this is my biggest shot and I'm going to lose it because this kid can't do this. Uh And um, I made a lot of money off of that. Um, It ran for decades. I mean, in reruns and all over the world. And, um, you know, but what I wanted was a hit record. I didn't want a song on television. That was awesome. But I wanted a hit record. And uh, that took a lot that took a lot longer. That was 11 yeah. years. Yeah. So, okay. We'll, we'll get to that. But the, so these first two uses that made you money, significant money, right? Like, so when you got that $10,000 royalty, you got that song placement, like, mm-hmm. did you upgrade from the cat food and did you treat yourself to a meal? Okay. My dream during that period of time, and seriously, you and your listeners are going to think I'm joking, but I'm not. My dream, my vision of success was to be able to go to McDonald's around the corner and order anything I wanted. Just order, you know, a happy meal and a shake and whatever I wanted and not worry about what it costs. And you have to realize that in addition to the cat food, my food budget at that point cost more for, I, I spent Let me say, here's what I'd say if I could speak. Okay. Hmm? A McDonald's happy meal cost more than my food budget for a week. (laughs) I learned how to eat cheap. 
I, I learned how to buy day-old bread, out-of-date hot dogs, and eggs, and cat food. And that's what I was living on, for the most part. And, you know, when I started to make money, and by the way, I didn't get a $10,000 check. Right. It, it comes in a little, little, little bit, yeah. Right. But when that happened, the first thing I did, besides go, after coming back from McDonald's, um, I moved out of my room upstairs in the same building. I mean, I really was living the high life because now I had my own bathroom. I still didn't have a kitchen, but I had a hot plate and I had a little mini fridge. So I was, you know, I'd moved to Beverly Hills as far as I was concerned. And I was happy. These were great times. But in time, I decided, you know, I want, I want more. I want to not see life was very stressful being that poor, even though I was happy because the least little expense became a crisis. When I got a flat tire, that was like, oh my God, I can't afford to get my tire fixed. And I decided it was time to make more money than that. So I signed up for temp agencies. And I could go a long time on this, but I don't want to. I'm going to basically cut to the chase and tell you that I didn't see. I think one of the things I just intuitively do is I try to not leave things to chance if there's something that I can control. There's so much mm-hmm. we can't control. But when I decided to sign up to be a temp, I researched and learned that there was an agency in Los Angeles where I lived that dealt specifically with providing temps to the entertainment business. And I thought, wow, that could be a foot in the door. If I have to work more hours, at least I'm going to make some connections, maybe learn about the business. Yeah. So it didn't work out great initially. I wound up like filing for some television station and things like that. But then I got a, uh, a temp assignment that really opened up some doors for me. I wound up being, (laughs) it sounds crazy, but I very quickly went from being a temp to being a publicist with an agency that handled some really big superstars. Mm -hmm. The person that I would see, I was hired to help someone who was in the middle of a drug fueled nervous breakdown. And that's why she couldn't do her work. And it turned out that she started calling me at home at night and was paying me under the table to do like all her work. Mm -hmm. And I found that I was good at it. And I knew how I just sort of knew how to do a lot of it. I can't tell you why. And at some point, the bosses shipped her off to rehab and said to me, we're not stupid. We know you've been doing all her work. So now you have her job. So at 23, I was thrust into a world of just interacting with some of the biggest superstars in Hollywood. Mm. And it was um, horrible. I was making money. I was now living in a beautiful place. And I was miserable because Mm. that job was consuming me. And there was no more time or energy to be a songwriter. Um, During that time, they pulled strings. And one of their clients, who I will not mention, but somebody who was a superstar, recorded one of my songs. And it was like bait to keep me in the job. Uh Uh, The song wound up not getting released. I didn't make any money from it. But I did have my name in lights with the name of the song at Times Square on that giant moving billboard. And after about two years, I just, I walked away. And I said, this is not the life that I want. I did not move to Los Angeles to support 
other people being a star and I'm not going to be happy. And I went from that to being a receptionist in a film company. And the deal was they had told me when they hired me, if you are wanting to be something else, a singer, a songwriter, an actor, it would behoove you to not tell me that because <laughs> the bosses would like me to not hire somebody who is going to quit as soon as they get some other thing. Yeah. So I did, I said, you know, okay, that's, you know, that's fair. Thank you. And I became the receptionist and 10 hours a day, four days a week. I literally, this was my life. Good morning, Churchill Films. Can you hold, please? I'll be right with you. Good morning, Churchill Films. Can you hold, please? He'll be right with you. If you can hold, I'm sorry. He'll be just another moment. I'll be right with you. And I literally did that 10 hours a day. Oh my gosh. And I would go home, take a nap, or sleep maybe four or five hours. And then I would go into the recording studio that I could get dirt cheap from midnight till 6 a.m. And I would record my demos. And I would come to work mm. the next morning after having been up the entire night. I started at 7 a.m. at work. So after the recording studio, I would go to McDonald's and get lots of coffee and breakfast. And I would show up to be a receptionist, and I would be carrying a little case that was full of my recordings. And there was a day when they were screening an educational film, and the director said to me, we are desperate for some kind of music to put into this scene. We envision it being something like Pat Benatar. And you're mm -hmm. always carrying around this case that's got music in it. Do you have anything like that with you? I swear to you that I had gone from midnight till 6 a.m. writing a song that I wanted to pitch to Pat Benatar. I mean, recording. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so, timing. Yeah. So I handed them the song. It stayed in the film. The film won some big awards. And that is how I went from receptionist to in-house composer, and I won an Emmy Award and, uh, and also had an Emmy nomination that I didn't win, and I did not know what in God's name I was doing scoring films. I just was, just lied my way into, yes, I know how to do that. I studied it in college, and blah, 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 and they gave me a shot, and it was just, in a sense, it was exciting and fun. I was seeing my songs on television and writing not only the score, I was writing songs for the films. I was singing some of them. Yeah. But it wasn't what I wanted. And I knew in my heart I was not good at it. So after winning an Emmy Award, I, wait a second. I've got to share one aspect of something that is so crazy. Please, crazy. Bring good. me back. Bring me back to where I was about okay, I've got what it. I did after winning the award. If I forget, yes. When I won the Emmy, I was actually working as a temp for the Olympics, and my department was very tiny. We were press accreditation, you know, issuing badges and things for press people from around the world. So the whole department was my boss, me and one other guy. So we really bonded. We spent a whole summer, just the three of us would always have lunch together. And this other temp just was like the quirkiest, most arrogant guy. I mean, I liked him totally, but he was like, I'm going to be so big. Just wait and see how big I'm going to be. I was like, well, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to be a big writer or director or producer or anything. And he was in the film program at UCLA. Mm -hmm. That temp who worked with me went on to write a little movie called Lethal Weapon. <laughs> and he became the highest paid screenwriter in the history of Hollywood. So there we were both temping, making minimum wage. And I wind up 
with the success that I wound up with, and he winds up being one of the richest people in Hollywood. So the point is, dreams can really come true. Yeah. So back to our regularly scheduled story, I knew in my heart that I didn't know what the hell I was doing with film scoring. And I decided to get into the film scoring program at UCLA mm -hmm. and learn what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, I learned two things. I learned that I was probably the least talented person in the entire class, even though I was the only one that had ever scored TV shows or movies. And I learned that I hated it and I did not want to do it. I want to write pop songs. I want to write country songs. I want hit songs, not movie scores. And I stopped doing it. The next so you've had a you've had a couple invitations to stop and be comfortable with the money and hold on to that at that point. Right. And if I had wanted that, I could have stayed in Philadelphia, gotten a doctorate in psychology, and lived a nice, comfortable life. And it was never gonna work for me. Yeah. I knew in my heart I had to give it a hundred percent. There was no plan B. Every time I accidentally fell into a plan B, when I recognized how deeply I was in, I climbed my way out. So, um, well, I, I wanted to, I just want to pause on that for a sec and mm -hmm. acknowledge that, right? Because like, I think that's a hang up for a lot of us, whether we're aspiring or mid career in whatever we're doing with storytelling or writing. Like, what, looking back on it, and maybe if you can, like, like, how did you stay that true to your North Star? Like, what is it? Like, because a lot of people, I don't think they would maybe give up, right? At least on yeah. what their dream was. Yeah. And I'm sure you've seen that. Hundreds of times. Yeah. And so, like what did you offer yourself that people can offer themselves? Happiness, a sense of, of accomplishing what the only thing was that mattered to me, which was having hit songs. Mm. And, and the other options were just pale you know, comparisons. They were not going to bring me the happiness that I wanted. It reminds me, I toured a Hindu temple that was just spectacular. And the tour guide was saying that a lot of the monks who are there, I don't remember what time they woke up in the morning, it was something ridiculous, like two in the morning or three in the morning for hours of silent prayer and meditation. And, and they gave up all worldly goods and lived within the confines of the monastery. And someone in the tour asked, you know, how can you do that? How can you just give everything up? And the answer was, once you have tasted the rewards, everything else is meaningless. Mm. And, and that's what it was like for me. It was the anticipation of that taste. I didn't have them yet, but I knew I had to have them. And it's not something that I know how to teach people. I'm a really good teacher, but I can't teach somebody how to have that unwavering drive and determination that I have yeah. and that I had. And um, it just is something that was within me. Yeah. And I'm grateful for it. It also takes a heavy toll. There's a price to pay, mm -hmm. not only in terms of giving up the comforts and the security, but in terms of, I, I think in a lot of ways, I have always lived with a whip at my back, pushing me to success. And it paid off well, but that is a, a price to pay also. Yeah. And... Was there anything you kind of developed, right, to maybe help, you know, with the mentality of that or the health of that pursuit? Um, 
you know, I think I did everything that I knew how to do to support my pursuit, to lead me toward it being successful, meaning I took every songwriting class that I could get my hands on and living in Los Angeles, that was a lot of songwriting classes. Mm -hmm. um, so I was committed to getting feedback and, mm -hmm. and honing my craft and not settling until I was going to be, you know, super successful. And, you know, so really, I think I took every action I could take um, to move the journey along. But I think the sense of being willing to be in that journey for as long as it would take was simply something, I don't know if I'd say innate in me, but something that definitely is within me. The reason yeah. I say I don't know if it was innate, maybe it was in response to things from my early childhood. I don't think it matters. What I know is that it's not something I could teach or give someone. Yeah. I remember working with co-writing with somebody in LA who was the most talented person I had ever worked with. He had had maybe one or two cuts and of course, I had had none at this time. And oh my God, he was so talented. Just amazing. I was in awe of his ability. And after a year or two from that period, I learned that he had taken a job as an accountant mm. at mm -hmm. uh, Universal Studios. And it was like, no, that wasn't selling out. That's what was right for him. Yeah. He didn't want, he wasn't going to be comfortable with yeah. a life of insecurity and question marks. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want to forget to tell you about my next temp job. Okay, let's bring it. Okay. I got a temp job, and remember, this is not just pure coincidence. I had signed with an agency that provided temps exclusively for the entertainment business. Well, they sent me to RCA Records, and this was beyond a dream come true. I mean, oh my God, I'm going to be paid to be inside the doors at RCA Records. That was the good part. The bad part was they sent me to the country music promotion department. And I thought that this was probably a punishment for something I had done in a former life. Because at that point in time, I thought country music was pure garbage. I thought country music was just an oxymoron. You know, you couldn't even call it music. It was so, such trash. Cheating, drinking, three chords. And, but at least I was inside RCA Records. Well, my first hour on the job, my job was to stuff envelopes with a vinyl 45 single that was the debut by a brand new artist named The Judds. Mm -hmm. And we listened to that Judds album like eight hours a day. Uh, you know, people were trying to decide what the next singles would be and things like that. So that album played nonstop and it changed my life because I thought it was one of the best things I had ever heard in my entire life. And it was everything. It was the songs. Oh my God, the songs and the harmonies and Winona's vocals and the productions. Just, I had no idea that that could be country music. To me, that was like Linda Ronstadt. And I fell in love with it. And I decided I would write a song for the Judds. And I did. I wrote a song. And now I started, I was starting to make some contacts because I was working at RCA Records and meeting people. So I had an opportunity to play my hit song for the Judds for a music publisher. And he said to me, you know, this is, this is really good. There's only four things wrong with the song. I thought, that's not that bad. He said, you know what's wrong? 
the words, the music, the verses, and the chorus. Okay. You should know. Otherwise, you've got a really great song here. He said, actually, after he laughed, he said, you know, what you've got is a great idea for a country song. Now you have to write it. To make a long story short, I rewrote the song seven times and along the way brought in a collaborator, Brian Cumming. And after the seventh rewrite, that publisher got the song recorded in one day. And it became, I mean, he shipped it by FedEx to his Nashville office. And that opened up everything for me. Mm -hmm. I now had a song on Billboard's country charts, even though it was only there for about 10 minutes, it really opened up things for me. Yeah. But now to back up to the job at RCA, after a couple of years, there was an opening in the A&R department for pop and I got the job and suddenly I am now, as, as I proved myself after more time went by, I was tasked with screening a lot of the songs and artists that were being submitted. And along the way, people were submitting songs for Kenny Rogers, Dolly Parton, Alabama. I mean, these were huge country acts on RCA. And now I was the only person in A&R who had been immersed in country music for the mm -hmm. last two years. So I became the person that did all of that screening. So the end of the story is I was offered other positions. I was offered a position as a publisher. And here we go again. Jason walked away and said, I am getting totally too far away from what I want. If I take this job as a publisher, I absolutely know I have changed the path of my life. And it's not what I want. So with having had that song on the country charts, the producer of that song was Don Goodman. He had written six number one country singles. I had written one country song and he wanted to write with me. I'm trying to hurry this up because I know we'll run out of time. <laughs> yeah, you, you can keep going as long okay. as you want to. This is a good story. Yeah. So I maxed out my credit card to go to Nashville to write with Don Goodman. Mm. There was no other reason to go. I didn't know a soul in Nashville. But Don had produced my song and was this huge hit writer. I, as always, and still to this day, I don't like to leave things purely to chance. I want to walk into a writing session with a killer idea, with some notes that I've already made in case I've got a headache or I'm brain dead that day. And I had probably at least 10 songs started and went to meet with Don Goodman and he never showed up. Hmm. He just completely oh, no. blew me off. And his publisher felt horrible about it. And she said, you know, let me see if I can't find somebody else in the building to write with you. And she came back and she said, Jason, this here's AJ Masters. AJ, this here's Jason. Y'all go right ahead now. And in 45 minutes, we had taken the song that I had brought with me that was really, I had gotten a great start on it. And AJ put his unbelievable talent and magic on it. And I walked out of there without a doubt, knowing I had just written a song that was like a thousand times better than mm. anything I had ever done. And then AJ's publisher, I, go, I fly back to LA, AJ's publisher in Nashville demos the song and they send it to me. And it sounds just like a smash on the radio. I had no idea how amazing a demo not only could sound, but really had to sound. So now I know I'm going to be a superstar. 
you know, immediately this song, how could anybody not record it? Yeah. Well, went back to my day job at RCA and three and a half years later, the Oak Ridge Boys recorded the song. It was called Change My Mind, but it should have been called Change My Life because I owned my publishing on that song. And every publisher who wouldn't even return my calls now is whining and dining me, wanting to sign the person who can bring the next Oak Ridge Boys single to the deal. Now, when I say bring it to the deal, I was going to have to be paid well for that. But what I wanted more than any, I wanted more than breath itself <laughs> for 11 years. All I wanted was a staff writing deal, a way to quit my day job and have a publisher who was going to develop me, pitch my songs, make me a star. And suddenly I had six offers on the table. I was still poor, not as poor as I had been, but I was very poor still. Uh, they didn't pay really well at RCA. But from the point of view of what, could, what company should I sign with, the one that offered me the most money or the one that offered me what I believed were opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I went with the company that owned a record label because I imagined they would put me with their artists that they would, or even if they didn't put me with their artists, I would have an in to have them pitch my songs to their artists. And that's the company I went with. I took $5,000 a year less than I could have gotten. And this is a long time ago. I mean, mm -hmm. I could have, that $5,000 a year probably was, was the equivalent, I don't know what, it was a huge amount of money to me. And that was the best decision of my entire life because that company, years later, signed some unknown acts named Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys. And the rest mm -hmm. is history. The rest is history. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So that's my story of how, how did I get from there to wherever I got. From there to here. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, yeah. And so you're still teaching. Teaching. It's hard to even and, explain this. It is so much part of my identity. The very first time I took a songwriting class in Los Angeles, the teacher walked up to the podium, and I'll never forget it. I was on the front row. I looked at her, and I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I want enough success as a songwriter so that I can be the teacher. And this will sound almost unbelievable, but when I got the Backstreet Boys cut, it's very easy to do some math and figure out with the mechanical royalty rate times if they sell 20 or 25 million albums, how much money I'm going to see. And I swear to you that my first thought was this will give me a level of credibility as a writer so that I can teach at the highest levels. And that's, that's what mattered to me. And it's just, it's, it's who I am. It's, it's teach. I am more alive when I'm teaching than any other time in my life. Wow. That's a big statement even compared to the writing, which I'm sure is a thrill, right? The writing can be a thrill, but it's work at this point. I would love to tell you, um, this is a confession. I would love to tell you that I write from joy that it pours out of me. And I don't write that much these days. But when I do, it, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to separate the business and, and to separate the, okay, am I going to get this cut? Um, do I have this chorus hooky enough in order to make this act bump a song 
that they wrote. And so I don't, I don't find the pure joy from writing, but it's a deep, deep satisfaction that is a different thing from joy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. And so what do you, you mean? You don't have to write songs now and you don't have to probably do much, but like, so what do you do to keep that sense of ongoing like satisfaction? Funny you would ask that. Um, I really consciously put songwriting on a back burner. Actually, what happened is the publisher that I was signed with for 12 years, I made a lot of money for them. They made a lot of money for me. I could have stayed there the rest of my life, seriously, mm -hmm. because I was completely recouped. I wasn't needing advances. I could have just stayed there. But they got sold. They got sold in the blink of an eye. It didn't exist anymore. And I made a decision that there was a book that I wanted to write, um, not about the music business, mm. and that the only way I could do that would be to, to not do another staff writing deal. Mm -hmm. That if I were beholden to a company where my job was to, was to crank out money-making hits, I couldn't put the effort into the book that I wanted to write. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. I'm writing that book. Wow. And um, it is taking infinitely longer than I ever imagined. It uh -huh. Trust me, it takes a lot longer to write a book than a song. Oh, I and know, takes, Jason. <laughs> and it takes a lot longer to rewrite a book six times than it takes to rewrite a song <laughs> six times. And that's... Um, most of my focus. I yeah. still teach my BMI workshops now during, you know, the period of COVID are now online. If anybody wants to know about them, go to jasonbloom.com, J-A-S-O-N-B-L-U-M-E.com and click on BMI workshops. They're open to anybody. And of course, the real draw to the workshops is I choose songs that I forward to up to 10 publishers, actually up to 12 publishers, depending on the genres. And I will say that at my last workshop, I got a, somebody signed a contract with the publisher who I sent their song to, and it was the first publishing contract he's ever signed. And there is nothing like that for a teacher. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I still teach I still write magazine articles for two of BMI's magazines, but I feel like primarily my full-time job is writing this book. That's so cool. Yeah, in my, in my audience, I talk to screenwriters and authors and songwriters, and so mm -hmm. I think authors will appreciate hearing, hearing that little tidbit. And yeah. Yeah. But I think I'm a person who always has to have a project. I always have to have a mission, a goal that I'm that I'm that I'm obsessed with. Um and that's my that's the one. So fantastic. Is it fiction, memoir or it's memoir, but not what people would expect. It covers a period from when I am sixteen years old until I'm twenty-one. And it's it's tough to summarize, but the bottom line is I learned my father's secret when I was 16. Mm. And his secret was that he was so severely agoraphobic, he had not walked one block from the house in more than 30 years. Mm. And the following year, he made an unfortunate decision and killed my mother. Wow. So we were yeah. not close, to put it mildly. Yeah. But I was getting a degree in psychology very early. I had skipped ahead in school. So I was 17. I was in college. And I learned that there was a new treatment for phobias. And I became my father's therapist mm -hmm. when I was 17. Mm -hmm. And the end of the story is that my father and I not only healed our relationship, but we traveled to nine countries together, and he became one of the top agoraphobia therapists in the world. 
Wow. And that's my book. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's one thing to have a great story, and it's another thing to tell it in an amazing bestseller kind of way. And I'm having to learn. It's a big difference from writing how to be a songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine there's like, there's a power to story, especially when it's rooted in something real. Right. And, and I, I hope know. so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I'm confident. I'm confident. So you'll have to listen to the podcast and hear some of the guests and other people, but well, I will. Yeah. The, I'm confident that, that, that has a place and it has readers and so am I. Yeah. Well, Jason, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Well, it has been my pleasure. I have really had fun. I'm so glad. To- thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover The Fearless Storyteller podcast.